All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT Network. Um, tonight, we've got a living legend for you guys. I'm so honored that I get to do these interviews. Uh, Professor Noam Chomsky is one of the most cited scholars in world history. That's literal. Uh, he's been a longtime professor at MIT and now emeritus. Uh, and uh, one of the leading intellectuals of our times. So, Professor Noam Chomsky, great to have you back on The Young Turks. Pleased to be with you again. All right. Um, so, there's so much to talk about elections, cancel culture, you name it, but I can't help but dive in on manufacturing consent. Um, so, uh, this primary, the Democratic primary in 2020, to me, uh, probably was a, a shining example of, of manufacturing consent. But I want to ch check it out at the source here. Uh, the way that I saw it was um, the media had, had done a, a great number of negative articles about Bernie Sanders. Uh, they had done positive articles about a number of different candidates, but had not focused on Biden. After Biden won South Carolina, they appeared to be unified in saying Biden is the only electable one and, and Bernie uh, will create a massive trouble for the Democratic Party. Am I seeing that wrong or, or did you get a sense that that's what was happening? And if that's what was happening, what's the mechanics behind that that manufactures that particular consent? Well, there's no question that the media, including the liberal media, New York Times and so on, were uniformly opposed to Sanders and uh, dedicated to ensuring that he would not be nominated. Uh, that was hardly concealed. Uh, the, uh, however, the narrow question of why he wasn't nominated should be looked at more carefully. Uh, he, uh, it's true that the media were completely opposed, but that's not the entire story. Uh, if, if you look at the exit polls and so on, it seemed that Sanders was counting on a surge of young voters. Uh, didn't materialize. Uh, that was one gap. Uh, he basically lost two important constituencies, uh, women and Afro-Americans. Now, the exit polls indicated that they tended to support Sanders' programs, but felt that he would not be able to reach out to a constructive, broad enough coalition to uh, defeat Trump, which is the overwhelming concern for pretty obvious reasons. Maybe they were right, maybe they were wrong. But that's what it looks like. Now, maybe the extent to which they were influenced by media insistence that he couldn't win, it's very hard to estimate. We don't know what determined yeah. judgments hasn't been looked into. Should be. So, Professor Chomsky, uh, you know, the, the politics of whether Bernie could have won or not without the media and how much it, it affected it is super interesting. But but in this context, I, what I find to be more interesting is the mechanics of how the media comes to a consensus. How does the New York Times and NPR and, and CNN and MSNBC, without ever talking to each other, because I don't think it's a conspiracy. I don't think they talk to one another. I don't think there's memos passed back and forth. How do they come to the same consensus on their own? They come from a very 
narrow shared background where these are deeply indoctrinated commitments. You can see it very clearly by looking at this morning's press. So, for example, there's, uh, I think it's in the Washington Post, article on the uh, convention, you know, the primaries, who spoke last night, what they said, and so on. And it's very striking to see that what they say is that there was a small voice didn't dominate for the far left, notice, far left positions of Bernie Sanders. And then it names the far left positions. What were they? Universal medical care and free higher education. Can you think of a country that doesn't have universal medical care? I mean, in the developed world, we're the only one. That's far left. How about free higher education? All over the place. Uh, Finland, the country that does best in international comparisons, rich country. Germany, a rich country. Mexico, poor country. Uh, what they call far left is trying to rise to the level of other countries. That tells you something. That tells you where that consensus lies. The consensus is so far to the right that what is normal throughout the world is in comparable countries is called far left. Well, that's an example of how indoctrination works. Now, it's not that they talk to each other and say, let's all be on the far right. It's just, that's the, it's kind of like the air you breathe. It's what uh, Antonio Gramsci called the hegemonic common sense. You just accept it because it's normal. Yeah. Same on issue after issue. So, Professor Chomsky, I think that's, of course, I think that's exactly right. And I mean, I quote you on it often, uh, but, um, and, there's, and and so it's in the hiring decisions and they hire in a very narrow bandwidth of, of acceptable ideas. Um, so given that, is there any hope for the mainstream media or corporate media, or are they forever going to be economically conservative because of the invisible hand of the market and this process that we have talked about? There's plenty of hope. They're a lot better than they used to be. I mean, we've forgotten what it's like. But if you have a nice long beard, you can remember, you can go back to earlier years. I could give you examples if there was time, but there's no time. But in fact, the uh, media today are considerably more open, critical, uh, uh, open to new ideas than they were just a few years ago, certainly. 50 or 60 years ago. The reason I think is uh, twofold. Partly it's changes in the, those who, those who write for the media today, columnists, uh, commentators, reporters, are people who came out of the uh, background, who came out of the life of the 60s, the 70s, and the aftermath. This was a period of popular ferment of, uh, high, of a, had a highly civilizing effect on the society. Uh, things that we, uh, that were taken for granted then uh, would be anathema today. Uh, I could run through them, but there's no time. And the people who've come through that are just different people. 
they have a different view of the world. So the media have somewhat opened. Furthermore, the general population has changed. There's popular support for what the media call far left, meaning moderate social democratic attitudes common elsewhere that was not true before. And the media have to respond to that. So is there hope? Sure. And the hope lies in where it's always been, popular activism. Yeah. Once every four years to push a lever is okay, but real politics is what you do day by day, which lays the basis for the changes that are sometimes reflected in the electoral system and in the media. Well, I, I wasn't sure you were going to say that, so it's actually encouraging to hear that. And it sounds like uh, the culture moves the media, uh, and so you could actually create potentially a virtuous cycle rather than the vicious cycle that used to exist. So, but as currently as things currently stand, that consensus uh, that again is at a bare minimum very conservative economically still exists in the corporate media. Uh, so how do you read a paper day to day? I know you read four to five papers a day, or you used to for sure, um, uh, knowing that they have a certain agenda and that they will never admit that agenda. How do you physically, how do you consume the news in a way where you could filter out their agenda? Well, that makes it easy. When propaganda is hidden, it has to take some work and effort to dismantle it and correct for it. When it's right on the surface, takes a minute. You know the way it's going to be slanted, so you instantly compensate for it. It's, it's easy. It's even easier in a totalitarian state when the propaganda is so grotesque that people just laugh at it, and then you dismantle it quickly. It's a little more subtle here, but not that difficult. It's not quantum physics. You have to understand where they're coming from, what their assumptions are, and correct for them. And then there's plenty of information, a lot to learn. So, uh, Professor Chomsky, uh, as as you do that and as you look at the landscape, if you told anybody in Washington or New York, hey, Fox News does propaganda for the Republican Party, they would largely agree and they would understand that how, how that works. Uh, because, But they're not in that bandwidth of thinking. But if you told them that CNN and MSN well, maybe they might believe a little bit that MSNBC is doing propaganda for the Democratic Party because they've been so brazen. But if you told them CNN and New York Times and NPR are doing propaganda for the status quo and the establishment, they would think that you have three heads and that you're the craziest person that ever walked the earth. Uh, so do you, do you, th and they probably do think that about you and me, but, uh, but do you think that CNN does propaganda and, and New York Times in a similar way to Fox News, but it's just geared towards a different audience? How do I don't try to convince them, just as I wouldn't try to convince the people who wrote for Pravda during the Stalinist years. They undoubtedly believe what they're saying. I don't think they're lying. It's just that they are, the indoctrination is so profound that they can't see it. I mean, take the one example I gave. Uh, I'm sure they do think that it's far left to be to try to rise to the level of comparable countries. They think that's far left. Okay, I'm not going to try to convince them that it isn't. I would like the audience, the population, to understand what's being presented to them. 
It's for the public that we're, it's the public that you and I are approaching, not the editors of journals. Uh, we're tell, trying to get the public to see uh, what's happening in front of their eyes so that they can compensate for it and can go on to engage in the kind of direct, constant activism that has made a considerable change in the country and has affected the media too. You want to affect the media? Uh, you don't go to them and say, look, what you're doing is uh, propaganda. What you do is change the background situation within which they function and from which their journalists uh, arise, the where they grew up and developed. That changes things. That's why you can't have the kinds of things that used to be normal uh, 40 or 50 years ago in the media. It's changed. It's changed because of popular engagement. That's the way to change things. That's the way to... Yeah, uh, that's... You, we're seeing it unfold in front of our eyes, like, just like you said. I, I'm wondering, one, one last thing on this. Is, is there uh, one or a couple of news sources that you find to be the most objective that is more reliable than the rest? First of all, the, the media, say the New York Times, Washington Post, the uh, Financial Times, are uh, perfectly reliable. The journalists do serious work. They're courageous, honest. You just have to compensate for what's left out, the shaping, the attitudes, and so on. Uh, there's many other media with different points of view. We can turn to your program. We can turn to Democracy Now. We can uh, turn to the foreign press, uh, many other the business press, many other ways of compensating. There's no shortage of information. And uh, it's really not all that difficult to overcome the uh, the specific form of shaping and modifying uh, news and discussion that you see in the media. Once you understand how it works, you quickly compensate for it, pick what's valuable, uh, compensate for the rest. Yeah, we, we try to help our audience for what it's worth by simply declaring our perspective so that they know what they're getting. Uh, and we're, we hope that that's a little helpful. Um, we're progressive and we don't mind saying it. I think that pretending uh, that you don't have a perspective is is uh, problematic. Ridiculous. Everyone does. You do. I do. We just try to be open and clear about it, not conceal it. Make it very clear so everyone knows where we're coming from. Then they can deal with it. Yeah. So uh, you recently signed on to a letter uh, decrying cancel culture. Uh, now, a lot of people have different uh, ideas about what cancel culture is and what you meant and everybody else meant uh, by signing that uh, letter. So uh, I wanted to ask you directly, uh, what was your sense of what that letter was trying to accomplish and why did you sign it? First of all, the letter didn't talk about cancel culture, didn't mention it. Uh, there is a cancel culture, which the letter didn't discuss. If I'd written it, I would have discussed it. There's overwhelming resort to cancel culture on the part of the mainstream establishment. It's their bread and butter. I can give you plenty of examples from my own experience, ranging from being cut off at the last second from talking on NPR because an executive didn't want me to be on to uh, closing an entire publisher and 
destroying all its uh, stock because they didn't, an executive didn't want a book of mine to distribute and plenty more in between. And for me, it's minor. Uh, for others, it's much worse. That's just constant. What I understood the letter to be about is kind of a anodyne comment in favor of freedom of expression aimed at telling small segments of the left that they're making a mistake, both in principle and tactically, if they adopt the principles of the mainstream. They're making a mistake. And I tell them directly. So if you want to, if you don't like uh, Charles Murray giving a talk, the wrong way to deal with it is to break up his meeting. It's wrong in principle and it's a gift to the far right and to him. The right way to deal with it is to set up a counter uh, meeting in which you talk about what he's saying, use it as an educational opportunity, uh, everyone gains from it. If you break up the meeting, you're saying you're giving the right wing an opportunity to say, we're the good guys, we have to protect ourselves against these thugs over there. So giving them a gift is tactically wrong and principled wrong. And there are good ways to approach it. Uh, that's a very minor thing. You know, I say it all the time to people on the left. I see nothing wrong with signing a letter that says we should defend free speech. So, uh, Professor Chomsky, let's give an example here. Um, uh, I interviewed David Duke back in 2015 because uh, Trump was rising and he was a big supporter of Trump. And I wanted to see what form of discrimination he cares most about. And I thought it was informative because uh, I thought he was going to say against Latinos or Muslims or, or African-Americans, but he didn't. He mainly focused on Jews. And, and, and then we saw in the Trump administration, there was attacks on synagogues, there was Charlottesville. So I thought that was a telling, telling interview. But there are many who say, no, you should not do that. That's platforming David Duke and allowing him to spread his ideas to more people. How would you respond to that? That's a different question. Uh, universities, uh, other institutions have no responsibility to invite everyone, okay? Absolutely not. That's not even a question. They have no responsibility to invite David Duke, okay? However, if someone in the university does invite David Duke, the right response is not to give him a great gift by breaking it up and letting him look like the good guy. The right response at that point is to expose him. Have, uh, meet, have people at his meeting, if you want, raising questions. Have your own meetings where you bring up where he's coming from, what he's doing, why he's getting support from the Trump administration with their deep-seated racism and white supremacy. Bring all that out. That teaches people, organizes people, leads them to do something positive. Of course, it's harder than just getting in and shouting and screaming, but it's much more effective. Right. And uh, and I thought the right way to handle it, from my point of view, was to challenge every one of his assertions with facts and, and show how silly he is. But all right. Uh, I want to use the remaining time to talk about um, perhaps one of the most important elections of our lifetime, this one. 
so I know that the media says that about every election. Um, we're a little different. I, I thought the Bob Dole, Bill Clinton election was nearly identical candidates. Uh, Mitt Romney, Barack Obama, it's uh, heresy to say that, that, that they were very similar candidates in mainstream media that'll get you banned. Uh, but they were. They were incredibly similar candidates. Uh, I think Trump is not similar to anyone else. But I, I'm very curious about your opinion. Uh, do you think that this is an uh, easy decision uh, in terms of voting for Biden over Trump or over the Green Party or anyone else? Or do you think it's difficult? Well, first of all, I would take the traditional left opinion and say I think it's a completely uh, not even controversial that we should vote against Trump. Now, it happens in the system that exists. Voting against Trump means taking five minutes and pushing a lever for the opposition. Okay, That's a very small part of politics. Politics is the daily activism constantly that's teaching people why Trump is a, one of the fact of the matter, the most dangerous uh, figure in human history. Literally, there has been no one else, Hitler, anyone else, who was dedicated to destroying the prospects of human life on Earth in the next, in the short term. And that's exactly what he's doing. Just take the last couple of days, which are typical. Uh, opening up new, uh, in this case, a wildlife reserve, a new region in the Alaska for fossil fuel uh, exploitation, uh, cutting back regulations on uh, uh, release of methane. And we see this daily. Everyone is driving a spike into the possibility of organized human society. He does it with wonderful delicacy. Like these last two decisions happened to coincide with the report that the Greenland ice is probably reaching an irreversible tipping point and melting. I mean, we have a very severe problem. We have an individual who stands alone in the world of any significant person and trying to make the crisis worse. Uh, uncontrollable, uh, destroy organized human life on Earth in order to enrich his rich constituency of uh, fossil fuel industries and others. There's been nothing like this. There is simply no question about who to vote against. Now, turning to real politics, what you do is vote against and then continue the work that is pressing the Democratic Party program to the left farther than any in memory for quite some time. Didn't happen because they underwent a religious conversion. They, they underwent it because of groups like Sunrise Movement, and other activists who were pressing all the time, uh, were able to get a number of very good progressive delegates elected were able to change. Uh, Sanders had enormous success in shifting the range of discussable issues and in even getting the DNC much against their will, I have no doubt. 
to accept a program that's well to the left of anything perceiving. That's real politics. You also take a couple of minutes to do something that is so obvious that we shouldn't even be discussing. Press the lever to get this malignancy out of our lives. And it has to be an overwhelming vote, remember. Ordinarily, when I'm asked, I would say that if you're not in a swing state, sometimes even if you are in a swing state, if it doesn't matter. But if you're not in a swing state, do what you like. You know, don't vote, vote green, whatever it is. This time's a little bit different. We have a person in office who is unique in the history of parliamentary democracy. He has already made it very clear that he does not intend to accept the outcome of an election if he loses. It is very clear. And there are, there are now high-level discussions, not out of the fringe, about the ways he would, might do it. It's all very possible. Now, it gets harder for him to pill off, pull off this uh, dictatorial scheme if there's an overwhelming vote against him. So in this particular case, my own opinion is even in a swing state, one should vote against him. This is a unique moment. There has not been anyone like this. Uh, it's not just me who thinks so. You can read the same thing in the state and conservative financial times of London, uh, where they yeah. I'm say it'll be terminal if he's elected. So, uh, Professor Chomsky, I, I got to ask one more question then. Uh, so, uh, I think he's an existential threat to democracy itself. Uh, Bernie Sanders said likewise last night. Uh, you seem to be indicating something uh, similar to that. But you also mentioned that uh, he was, if I, I don't want to misquote you, you're right here, but it sounded like you were saying that he's worse than Hitler on mainly on the issue of climate change because it's an existential threat to all of us. One. Right. Now, if that's true, isn't the entire Republican Party and some uh, Democratic uh, politicians that still take money from fossil fuel companies, uh, if any of them deny climate change and, and in any way slow down efforts uh, to, to fix it, wouldn't they be in the same camp as Trump then? They're all culpable. And in fact, what actually happened, we should look at closely. It's For the Republican Party, it's pretty recent. In 2008, not that long ago, John McCain ran for president on the Republican ticket. He had a, a, a climate, a, a global warming plank in his platform. It was nowhere near enough, but it was at least something. Uh, the Republican Senate was considering legislation about mild efforts to mitigate climate change. The Koch brothers heard this. They'd been pouring money into the Republican Party to ensure that it would not commit this heresy. Uh, the late David Hoke launched a juggernaut to try to turn the Republican Party around. Uh, bribing senators, intimidating them, threats of running candidates against them, huge lobbying campaign, uh, astroturf campaigns. They switched. They became denialists. They were all bought off. Uh, you look at the 2016 primary, 
every single candidate either denied that what's happening is happening or said, maybe it is, but it doesn't matter. There was one who spoke at the Democratic Party a convention yesterday or the day before, John Kasich. He was admired because he said in 2016, he said, yes, global warming is happening. In fact, he was the worst of them all. What he said is, yes, global warming is happening. He was governor of Ohio. He said, but we in Ohio are going to use our coal and not apologize for it. In other words, he said, yes, I know we're destroying the prospects for human life on Earth, but we don't mind. We're going to continue doing it. That's what he was praised for, okay? So praised that he spoke at the Democratic primary. So yes, they're all culpable, but Trump is off the spectrum. Not, of course, just him. He and the people around him. Uh, there's just nothing like it. I mean, there are some minor figures in the world, like Bolsonaro in Brazil, who imitate him. But in the among major figures, he's unique. In fact, unique in history. So I'll say it again. Yes, worse than Hitler. Hitler wanted to kill all the Jews, the 30 million Slavs, didn't aim to destroy organized human life on Earth. Sounds outrageous, but it's true. All right, Professor Noam Chomsky, uh, thank you so much for joining us and for the clarity that you've uh, given us as usual. I really appreciate it. It's been an honor.